You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Kobernack. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. Matthew chapter number 28, if you don't mind standing, we'll begin reading in verse number 16. The Bible says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And you can be seated. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house tonight. I do pray that you would just bless the message, that you speak to our hearts, that you would give us exactly what we need from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1940s, the U.S. ship line proposed to build a new ship that it would call the SS United States. At close to an $80 million project, this was going to be the largest ship ever created in the United States and the fastest ship in the world. The United States government, though, upon hearing about this, invested $50 million into this project. It was the government's plan to use this new ship as a troop carrier, able to carry some 10,000 troops into battle, if necessary, in the time of war. In 1952, the SS United States finally set sail, but not as a troop carrier. It set sail with plans for fast transatlantic travel and that it did, making history with some of breaking records for transatlantic travel that stand to this day. But it was never used as a troop carrier. Rather, it made history as a luxury liner that catered to wealthy patrons. It finally had its last customers in 1969, and ever since 1996, the SS United States has been docked at Pier 82 on the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. And there it's still a uh, popular tourist attraction Over the following years, it's changed ownership multiple times, and now it's beginning to decay, and really nobody knows what to do with the SS United States. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, are a reminder to us, to the church, that the church is to be a troop carrier, not a luxury liner. That the church is to be a war vessel, not a tourist attraction. Jesus Christ gave us, he left us with a mission, and the last command of Jesus is to be the first priority of the church. We have been given a mission by our Lord Jesus Christ. By the time we get to Matthew chapter number 28, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have all taken place, and all that's left now for Matthew to record is this post-resurrection meeting between Jesus and his disciples on some pre-appointed Galilean hillside. And a summary of that meeting is in verse 16 and 17. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. In verse 16 and 17, it tells us about this appointed meeting. And then in verse 18 and 20, Jesus approaches the disciples, and he gives them what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. But I want to kind of take a step back, and I want us to kind of Feel the the tension, if you will, between the setting of the Great Commission in verses 16 and 17 and the statement of the Great Commission in verses 18 and 20. In verses 16 and uh, 17 here, what we have is, picture the scene. The disciples are waiting on this pre-appointed hillside, and when they see the the resurrected Jesus approaching them, the Bible says that they fall down on their face and worshiped. 
But Matthew notes that while this is taking place, some of them doubted. Now, the language of the text isn't that like this, this group was divided in half, that some worshipped and some doubted, but rather that they fell on their face and they worshipped, and some of them, while they're worshipping in their hearts, they're doubting whether or not this is really even Jesus. Can this be possible? Is this really him? Some doubted while worshipping. And yet Jesus continues to approach them, and he entrusts to them his mission in this world. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a great way to start a worldwide movement. But what we learn from that is very, very important. We learn that Jesus uses weak, sinful, and doubting people to be his messengers in this world. Now, some of you might not have caught what I was getting at here. That means Jesus uses people like you and me to carry out his mission in this world today. Though we're weak, though we're sinful, though imperfect and, and grasping with doubt at times, we are still called to press forward with the mission that Jesus has given us. Listen, I, I think a lot of people, we get sidetracked and we think in our mind that we have to be to a certain place first before we can engage in this mission, before we can really share our faith and be a soul winner and be a witness for Christ. That's for people that got it all figured out. But that is not the, the impression the Bible gives us. There's story after story of great men that we would revere as great men in the Bible and great women in the Bible who served the Lord. They pressed into the mission that God had for them and yet wrestled with great seasons of doubt. Let me give you just one of them. John the Baptist. Remember, it was John the Baptist that pointed at Jesus Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It was John the Baptist that Jesus said, there hasn't been anybody that's been born of a woman that's greater than John the Baptist. But it was also John the Baptist that while he was in prison, he sent the, his disciples to go to Jesus and ask him, are you really the one or should we look for another? Even someone like John the Baptist who one moment out of his mouth is saying, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And the very next moment he's saying, are you sure you're really him or should we look for another? Listen, we're all at times going to wrestle with doubt, but the great news of the text is that God uses sinful, weak, doubting people to carry out his mission. In this early church, they took the mission so seriously that in Acts 17, we're told that when they arrived in Thessalonica, the locals said, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And I want to tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ can still today turn the world upside down. In 2023, with every problem that you can think of that's going on in our world today, the gospel can still turn the world upside down. The Lord is still willing to use weak and doubting and sinful people like you and me to be his messengers. But we must keep the main thing the main thing. We must make sure that we not lose sight of what Jesus has called us to do. And so what does that look like? What does fulfilling the mission that Jesus has given us look like? Well, quickly tonight, I want to give you three actions that we must take to fulfill our mission. Number one, we must believe the claim Jesus makes. We must believe the claim Jesus makes. Look at it again, verse 18, he said, so Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The Great Commission begins in verse 18 with a bold declaration of the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. Now, let's make note of the fact that verse 18 is not a commission, right? It's a statement. It's a declaration. It's a uh, claim that Jesus is making. It's not a commission, but the commission rests on the claim. 
if verse 18 isn't true, verses 19 and 20 are meaningless. If Jesus isn't who he said he is, if he doesn't have all power, if he doesn't truly have all authority, then verses 19 and 20 are meaningless. And so this Great Commission begins with, in verse 18 with this claim that Jesus makes. Jesus indeed has all power, but what he claims here is more than just mere power. Right? This word that he uses there, power, it means a, a delegated power with the right to use it. Maybe you could say authority. But really, even authority doesn't capture what Jesus is really saying here. I read one commentator said it this way, that when Jesus says he has all power, what he's saying is he has all, all the right of absolute authority and all the resources of absolute power. That's what Jesus is claiming here. He has all the right of absolute authority and all the resources of absolute power. That's what Jesus claims here. Not just omnipotent power, but sovereign authority. Let me try to explain it this way. In our house, as I'm sure in everybody's house in here tonight, there's a wall in our hall that has a little box on it called a thermostat. Now, I mean, you just saw all of my kids. I mean, I'm so excited to see them sing. They've never done anything like that before in their lives. And I mean, it was just, it was awesome. I think they did a great job. But you can tell all of them now are at the age where they could all reach that. It's, it's, it's low enough. They're tall enough. They could all reach that. It's, um, it doesn't have a lockbox over it. It's not got like hard to press in buttons. It's a touch screen. It's not complicated to figure out. It's got an up arrow and a down arrow. All of them have the power to touch that. But none of them have the authority to touch that. Right? Right, a few, few kindred spirits in here tonight, they can do it. They, they are physically capable of it, but they do not have the authority to touch the thermostat. That's off limits. All right? Maybe some of you didn't quite relate with that. Let's try it this way. In the sports world, the athlete has the physical strength to move the ball up and down the field or up and down the court. They have great skill. They have great talent. The referee only has a whistle. But the authority of the referee and his whistle trumps the power, the skill, the talent. The athlete, he might have multi-million dollar contracts and endorsements and shoe deals, and the referee has a whistle. But the power, the authority of that whistle uh, trumps all of the power of the athlete. Uh, it can restrict, penalize, even dis disqualify the athlete. And what the authority that the referee has over the sports world, Jesus claims over the entire universe. Except in Jesus' case, there's no, uh, no replays, no commissioner's ruling that can overrule the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we must believe the claim that Jesus makes. He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. You see the scope of his authority. One word, all. Now, I'm tempted to kind of list, make a list of all the things that Jesus' authority uh, conquers. But suffice it to say that if Jesus has all authority, no one else has any. He has all authority, all power. The scope of his authority, all. We see the sphere of his authority. He has all power in heaven and in earth. In heaven, it's more than just about heavenly bodies. Not just over power over the sun, moon, and stars, but rather over spirit beings. Both Michael and his army of angels and Satan and his army of demons all must submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. 
When he says in earth, it's more than just about land and sea. It's about people and people groups, despite race, religion, background, uh, economic status, wealth, religion, any of that. Remember Acts 1.8, he says, But you shall receive power after that you are, uh, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This one great statement, when Jesus says, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, this is one of the great Christological statements in all of the New Testament. Meaning this is an unmistakable claim to deity that permits no middle ground. When Jesus says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth, you can't walk away from that and just say, well, he was a good teacher. or He, he, he was a good prophet. He was a good moral example. No, Jesus Christ is God. And our mission in this world begins with simply believing the claim that he makes, that Jesus has all power. Someone said it this way, that Jesus declares here that the Heavenly Father has given him power of attorney to execute divine sovereignty at his personal discretion. Now, I've always heard people say, and most of the time it's been in the context of marriage and marriage counseling and teaching, that you know, if you have to walk around all the time talking about, I'm the man of this house, well, then you're probably not, right? Anybody ever heard somebody say something like that? If you got to go walk around and tell everybody how you have authority, you, you probably don't. And so is that the case here with Jesus then? He, he proclaims he has all authority, but is that true? One could easily conclude that that's not true by looking out at the, the world today and the events uh, that are going on and everything that's taking place. But can I encourage you to don't allow the breaking news of today to uh, uh, question the claim of Jesus. The proof that he had the right and the authority to make this claim was the fact that he was alive to make this claim. Back up and read the previous chapters. Remember, he, he is betrayed. He's arrested. He's beaten. He's scourged. He's uh, tried and falsely convicted. He's crucified, nailed to a cross, spear ran through his side. He's put into a tomb, and three days later, he arose from the grave, and now he's standing before them alive, declaring, I have all power. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. The proof that this claim is true is he was alive to make this claim. So to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us, the first thing we need to do is believe the claim that Jesus makes. Secondly, we need to obey the commission that Jesus gives. Verses 19 and 20 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The first thing he says there is to go therefore and teach all nations. The word teach there is more than just imparting information. In verse 20, he tells them, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. Then he's talking about imparting knowledge. But the first time he uses this word teach, it's more than just imparting knowledge. It literally means to, to make a disciple. In other words, we must first win them to Christ. We must teach them the gospel. We must see them get saved. The singular imperative of the Great Commission is to make disciples. A disciple is a follower. This wasn't a foreign concept. This wasn't something that Jesus started, right? The, all the rabbis had their disciples. And so a disciple is a follower. They would follow the rabbi to be with him, to learn from him, and as a result, become like him. And then having graduated from rabbinical school, they would then go on and could ha- had the right to go on and start their own school and, and create their own disciples following them. But that is not the license that Jesus gives his disciples here. On graduation day, Jesus commands his disciples to go out and make disciples for him. Not to go out and make their own disciples, but to go out and make disciples for him. 
And this is the task of every Christian. We are to call the lost to repentance. We are to call the lost lost people to repent of their sins and trust the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as salvation from the judgment and the wrath of God and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with their lives. We are to make disciples. Every disciple is to make disciples. Faithful disciples make disciples. It's not the job of the pastor. It's not the job of the staff. Every Christian is to be a disciple maker. And so what does this look like? Well, first we obey the commission Jesus gives us by going, he says. The first word of verse 19 is go. Like someone once said, you, you have to spell go before you can spell gospel. Jesus does not tell the world, uh, the, the, the world to go to the church. He tells the church to go out into the world. But what's interesting here is, though, is this command to go isn't given as if they would just sit idly by on the hillside if he didn't tell them to go. The, the command to go modifies the command to make disciples. And so Jesus is literally saying, as you are going, make disciples. Right? He's not saying this as if, if, if he didn't command them, they wouldn't do anything. They would just sit there and do nothing with their lives. He's telling them, as you're going, make disciples. Because all of us are going. Uh, how many, anybody else in here feel like your life is just go, 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 go? Right, it's almost, you laugh, it's almost facetious, right? We are so busy and our, our lives are so many other things and we got to do this and we got to do that and we got to go here and we got to go there. And God's saying, that's right, do those things. And as you are going, make disciples. In all of your going, make disciples. So the command to go modifies the command to make disciples. Simply saying, in all of your going, we are to make disciples in the natural course of our lives wherever we go. Now, if that's Thursday morning at 10 o'clock going out knocking doors, great. If it's Saturday morning, whether you go out at a designated time for soul winning, that doesn't excuse you from just in your day-to-day, every part of your life, when you go to the store, when you go to the doctor, when you go to the mechanic, when you, wherever you go, make disciples. We had the opportunity, we were, that was for Mother's Day. I had the, the, the great idea, Angie likes Olive Garden, and I am a good husband. And so, um, but I didn't, want to, we didn't, I didn't want to go on Mother's Day because that's, it's, it's a women's restaurant. If you're a man and you like Olive Garden, I'll pray for you. You know, it's a woman's restaurant, so of course it's going to be packed on Mother's Day. And so I had the superb idea that, well, let's go on Saturday, right? You know, we'll, we'll do that whole thing. It won't be as crowded. I'll still get my Sunday afternoon nap, and it's a win-win. And so we go on Saturday, and it was a little bit of a wait. There's a few other guys that had the same idea. And so we're sitting in the waiting room, and as we're sitting there with some other people that are waiting, Angie just starts up a conversation with this other lady that's sitting there. And, of course, you know, her husband's like this, just waiting for time to pass, you know. And but she starts talking to this lady because that's how she is. You know, Angie, I mean, we go anywhere, and she, she goes to the bathroom at a mall and comes out with a friend. I mean, it's just like she just, it's ridiculous, you know. Uh, and so she just starts talking to this lady, and you know, so then we kind of all engage in conversation and find out that uh, this was just this past Mother's Day, but her church still had not went back to in-person services. It was just online only. And so we invited her church. Sure enough, she came like the following Sunday. Eventually, uh, our pastor went and made a follow-up visit there, led her and her uh, fiancé to the Lord, and then they've been coming ever since. What I'm just simply saying is, whether you're going out soul winning at 10 or you're going to Olive Garden to do your duty, it's all wherever you go. As you're going, make disciples. That's what Jesus is saying. 
So first, we are to make disciples by going, but second, we make disciples by baptizing. Here, it's clear that baptism is no man-made tradition that you can just kind of reject at your discretion, right? Baptism is commanded. He commands that after you make disciples, you are to mark disciples by immersion in water in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Baptism, if you will, is our pledge of allegiance to the kingdom of God. It's In baptism, we identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our statement of commitment to the work of Christ and to his church. Now, of course, we understand on a Wednesday night that baptism does not save anybody. But it is the first step of obedience for those who are saved. And so he says that as you're going, make disciples. Teach them the gospel. See them get saved. And after you make disciples, you mark disciples. I'm so thankful that there's still a place here, Victory Baptist Church, that is invested in seeing people saved and seeing people baptized and still doing events like a kid's crusade. We're getting the gospel into the community. And it's such an awesome thing to have a church that is still actively seeing people saved and baptized on a regular basis. You know, there are churches that that baptistry does nothing but hold their Christmas decorations. You ought to be thankful that God has given you a place where on a regular basis you're seeing this disciple-making process play out. So we are to make disciples by teaching, by, by going, by baptizing, and then by teaching. Verse 20 says, Teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Salvation, of course, is the miracle of a moment. When a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are saved instantly. They are given eternal life at that moment. They are born again into the family of God. But discipleship is the process of a lifetime. And we are to bring the lost to Christ, but through faith and repentance. We are to bring the new convert into the church through baptism. But then we are to bring them to maturity through faithful Bible teaching. And so we got to get it in our mind. We understand that the Great Commission does not end when we see someone get saved. It doesn't even end when we see them get baptized. We need to make sure that we are teaching them all things that Jesus has commanded us. And I think that that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. You know, great soul-winning churches uh, can sometimes just be so consumed with getting people saved, and that's not a bad thing. But we need to understand there's so much more to it. We need to be making sure that we teach them that now that they're saved, it's their job also to go out and make disciples. We must continue with the process. Great Commission doesn't end just when someone gets saved. We have to teach them all that Jesus commands. Now, that's not the popular way to do it, right? Man-centered worship services, self-help preaching emphasis, and social ministry philosophies will definitely build a crowd, but they will never make disciples. And if there's anything worse than a church that doesn't teach the word, it's a church that teaches the word selectively. And so disciple-making requires faithful, biblical teaching. And so on a personal level, that means that every week whenever you're sitting in the church service and pastor is preaching, even on those weeks when he says something that rubs you the wrong way, even when he's preaching on that thing that you think he's just meddling now by bringing up, you ought to, instead of getting frustrated or angry or, I don't agree with that, and I don't think that's in his business, you ought to thank God that you have a pastor that is willing to say hard things, that is willing to put himself out there and say the uncomfortable to faithfully and biblically preach and teach the Bible. Jesus said, all things whatsoever have commanded you. In other words, we don't have editorial authority over the script. We are to preach the whole counsel of God. Even if your role obviously isn't a pastor, we need to make sure that after we see somebody saved, we see them get baptized, we need to make sure that they are learning the Bible. 
I hope that at the end of my ministry, I can end it the way that Paul did. In Acts 20 and verses 26 and 27, he says that my, my hands are free of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Basically, Paul's saying, look, if any of y'all die and go to hell, it's not my fault, right? I did my part the best I could. May God help us to live our lives in such a way that we can say that. That man, if anybody in this Roanoke Rapids area dies and goes to hell, it won't be my fault. Because I'm going to do everything I can in all of my goings to be teaching people the gospel. That as I go, I'm going to be trying to make disciples. And so we must believe the claim that Jesus makes. We must obey the commission that Jesus gives. And then lastly, we must embrace the comfort that Jesus shares. The last part of verse 20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. One of the favorite, my favorite Bible commentators to read after is G. Campbell Morgan. He was a famous evangelist and Bible teacher and wrote a lot of commentaries. There's a story that he was visiting an elderly sick member one time, and he read to her Matthew 28 in, in its entirety. And as he got to these closing verses, he read them, and he closed his Bible and began to uh, prepare to pray. And he looked at her and he said, that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? To which she kind of shockingly spoke up and said, it's not a promise, it's a fact. You know, the truth is, she's right. Jesus didn't promise, I will be with you. He declared, I am with you. What Jesus is saying is that, no, before, before you even go, I am with you. It's not some future, present, uh, future tense, off in the distance kind of promise. Jesus doesn't say, if you do this, I will be with you. He says, as you are going, know that I am with you. We carry out the great commission. We carry out the commission of Jesus Christ with the assurance of both his personal presence as well as his perpetual presence. You see, his personal presence is, I am with you. I love this. this. This assurance makes up kind of the bookends of the book of Matthew. In Matthew 1 and verse 23, the Bible tells us that the Savior would come and his name would be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. And then now, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus the Emmanuel is declaring, I am with you always. In Matthew 18, Jesus had promised them that when they gathered together, if two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with you in the midst. But now he promises that as they go out, he will also be with them. He's with them when they gather. He's with them when they go out. Lo, I am with you always. So we carry out the mission with both the power and the presence of Jesus. The omnipotent one of verse 18 is also the omnipresent one of verse 20. The one that says, all power is given unto me is the same one that says, I am with you always. We go into the world carrying the gospel with the assurance of that not only is divine sovereignty on our side, but divine sovereignty is by our side. We're not just doing the right thing and God is on our side as we go, but God is by our side. He is with us as we go. But also not just his personal presence, but his perpetual presence. He said, even unto the end of the world. There are four all-inclusive statements here in this text. First, Jesus declares he has all authority. Then he bids us to make disciples of all nations. Verse 20, he commands us to teach the disciples all things that he's commanded us. And now he gives the assurance that he will be with us all ways or all the days. Meaning, wherever the Lord would lead you, wherever the Lord would assign you, wherever the Lord would take you to be his witness, he declares, I am with you. 
Before you go, before you get there, before you begin to say a single word, I am with you. We need to remember, making disciples is not a program of Victory Baptist Church. It is the reason you exist. It's not just another thing you do. It's not just a, a Thursday morning thing, a Saturday morning thing. No, making disciples is why the church exists. And discipleship is a, the primary purpose for our existence. We are here to make disciples. Every disciple must be a disciple maker. And it's simply just as you go. Whether God sends you down the street to the grocery store or around the world, as you go, make disciples. As you go to school, as you go to work, as you go to the gym, as you go to the doctor, make disciples. Live and love like Jesus. Be confident in his authority. Teach his commands and abide in his presence. Let me ask you a couple questions tonight as we close. Number one is just simply this. Do you believe the claim that Jesus makes? Do you believe the claim of Jesus? Well, tonight, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I get that whole sharing your faith and being a soul winner, but look, I'm just, I'm just not good with people. I'm just not good with words. I'm just, that's, I'm just not comfortable with that. I don't really know what to say. I don't do well talking to people. That's not my thing. Well, then you clearly don't believe the claim that Jesus makes because the same one who has all power is telling you to go. So number one, it's not your power. It's not... It doesn't have to be your thing. It doesn't have to be in your strength. He promises he's the one that has all power. But also, you don't look at the one that has all power and say, no thanks. And so if you truly believe the claim Jesus makes, then there's no other option to the Great Commission than disobedience. So do you, do you believe the claim Jesus makes? Secondly, what are you doing to obey his commission? What are you doing to see a lost person get saved? I think every Christian ought to have somebody that they're currently working on. They have somebody that you're reaching out to. They have somebody at some place you frequent, at your job or in your neighborhood. What are you doing to see a lost person get saved? When's the last time you invited somebody over to your home for a meal for the purpose of sharing the gospel? When's the last time you took somebody out to lunch for the purpose of sharing the gospel? What lost person are you actively trying to see get saved? What new believer are you working on to see get baptized? Who's somebody that's been recently saved and baptized, and what are you doing to see them grow and be discipled in their faith? What are you doing to obey his commission? And then lastly, number three, have you embraced the comfort that Jesus gives? You say, well, I'm just scared. I just, I feel awkward. I don't know what to say. What if they ask me about the dinosaurs? You know, I just don't know what to say, and I'm just fear, and whatever the excuse might be. So I'm just timid. Think about it this way. You know, I know pastor just announced tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, uh, going out soul winning. What if you showed up at 10 o'clock tomorrow and your soul winning partner was none other than Jesus himself? I guarantee you, I don't care how shy and backwards you are, there wouldn't be a person that would still be timid and shy and nervous. I mean, we would be pumped. We'd be ready to go. We'd be filled with boldness. We'd be right there, excited at, every, at the opportunity. Well, if you believe the text... Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so embrace the comfort that Jesus gives. 
We don't have to rely on ourselves. We can press through our own nervousness and fear and inadequacy because of his power and because of his promise that his presence goes with us. In all of our going, we are to make disciples. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.